Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, May 1st. Mayday! Mayday! Well, yeah, that's what it is, you know. Just looking at the mess that is this program. What has happened to those who rightly handle God's word? Why are they so hard to find? Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine that's put forward for consumption by today's evangelicals is far from biblical, far from what God's Word says. It's something completely different. All right, so looking at the program notes today, looking at the program notes today, and uh, this is like Bible gymnastics. I, I feel like we're uh, we're heading to the Olympics of heresy or something like that, although the heresy Olympics are generally the Code Orange revival today. Maybe we got people who are training for the upcoming heresy Olympics. Who knows when the next uh, heresy Olympics will be. But uh, we're going to start off today with a Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update. We're going to be listening to Sid Roth and Robert Henderson on how to get healed in the courts of heaven, and we will unpack for you the Bible twisting that's going to go on on that program. And then uh, we will uh, mix it up with an emergent update as we listen again to Stephen Chalk. Uh, twisting scripture. This time, uh, by the way, common twisting uh, from the book of Acts, uh, the story of the uh, Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, progressives and postmodern liberals like to paint the Ethiopian eunuch as a fellow who apparently is uh, is um, a different gender than what he was born with or something. That's really not what the point of the text is at all. And we'll point out that uh, Stephen Schock is uh, missing some important data as he uh, mangles this text 
to talk about how it supposedly teaches so-called radical inclusion when it doesn't. And uh, and somewhere in there, we're going to have to take a break. And uh, then we're going to check in with T.D. Jakes. And T.D. Jakes is up to it. He is uh, twisting the story of the Garden of Gethsemane in much the same way we heard Robert Madu do. Yeah, his name isn't Robert Madudu. It's it's Robert Madu. How he did he did the do anyway. You got the idea. <laughs> Robert Madu twisted the story of Gethsemane. T.D. Jakes is doing something similar, and the name of the message we'll be previewing is "Get Out of Gethsemane." Get out of Gethsemane. Got to admit that T.D. Uh, Jakes does a better job of twisting uh, the story of the Garden of Gethsemane than Robert Madu did. Um, Yes, you see what I did there? Anyway, so <laughs> confusing myself. So uh, we'll check in with that. And then hour number two, we're going to head down to Arise Church in uh, New Zealand as we listen to the vision casting leader, John Cameron, uh, give uh, you know a mangled version of uh, the, uh, the Old Testament story from the book of Ezekiel of the Valley of Dry Bones. And uh, and so if you've ever heard the Valley of the Dry Bones twisted in a similar manner, then you would know that you're uh, <clears throat> being fooled, schnookered, uh, bamboozled, and deceived, things like that. So uh, with that, let's get down into the program proper. And uh, since we're going to begin with a prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange syndicate update, let's do this. an English fair, one evening I was there, when I heard a showman shouting underneath the flare, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts, there they are standing in a row, big one, small one, some as big as your head, give them a twist, a flick of the wrist, that's what the showman said, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts, every ball you throw will make me rich. There stands me wife, the idol of me life, singing roller bowl a ball a penny a pitch. Singing roller bowl a ball a penny a pitch. Singing roller bowl a ball a penny a pitch. Roller bowl a ball, roller bowl a ball, singing roller bowl a ball a penny a pitch. Yeah, that's right. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts, so we're heading over to Sid Roth's It's Supernatural program. It's not. It's it's not supernatural at all. It's just absolute deception. This is quite easily explained by the demonic if you're going to try to explain it via the supernatural. But none of this is biblical, and Sid Roth is a guy who has made a lucrative career of selling products that have no biblical basis in truth is the best way I could put it. And uh, we've noted that Robert Henderson has been making the rounds, most notably and recently he appeared on Sid Roth's program about apparently how to get healed in the courts of heaven. Here's Sid Roth and Robert Henderson to explain. Hello, Sid Roth here. Welcome to my world where it's naturally supernatural. My guest's wife had a prophetic dream, and she gave her husband an urgent warning from God. All right, so note how the program begins. Urgent warning from God. Prophetic dream given to uh, Robert Henderson's wife. Warning was this. If you do not pray correctly, people will die. 
Oh no. So if if Robert Henderson doesn't pray correctly then people will die. Now, I, immediately right on its face you have to challenge this. And the reason why you have to challenge it is because if God hasn't already instructed us how to pray correctly in scripture, then then well, people have been dying needlessly for thousands of years. And it all falls on God for not teaching it in his written word. You see what I'm saying here? So this is going to be extra biblical information that we're going to be getting from Robert Henderson, along with a twisting of scripture to make it appear like this is biblical. He got a revelation of how praying correctly is. Anyone interested in finding out? Me too. All right, so let's fast forward then. That was the introduction to the program. Moving forward just a smidge, now we can continue. Here's uh, Sid Roth and uh, Robert Henderson. Robert Henderson, I don't know about you, but if my wife had come to me with a dream like that, that would have put the fear of God within me. How'd you react? Well, yeah, that's exactly what it did. I mean, it, it, whenever she said to me that the Lord had said, tell Robert that if he does not pray for them correctly, they will die. It, it actually, it did put the fear of God in me, but it also kind of frustrated me because I was like, well, what do I do with that? I mean, I'm doing the best I know how. I'm, do, I'm praying for these people. We're seeing people healed, but we were seeing some others that were not healed. And I knew God was addressing that. Okay. Uh, so you were. So God was addressing the fact that some people you had prayed for were not healed. Okay. Really seeking God, and He gave you a revelation of, uh, of God in three. Uh, dimensions of prayer. Explain that. Yes. Uh, In the book of Luke, Jesus, whenever his disciples ask him in Luke 11 to teach him to to teach them to pray, he actually in the book of Luke, Luke 11, he he gave them two dimensions. And then in Luke 18, added the third dimension. Uh Uh-huh. So Jesus gave two dimensions early in Luke and then later in Luke added the third dimension. How come these three dimensions are not laid out in that manner so that we, the church throughout its entire history, could have been praying in three dimensions? He first said, when you approach God, approach him as father. He said that, that they should say, our father which art in heaven. And then he, uh, That's the Lord's prayer given from Luke 11, verse 2. That in Luke 11, verses 5 through 8, and which of you having a friend. So the second realm is... A, so second realm is friend. So father and friend is, uh, is two of the three dimensions of prayer. Mm-hmm. God is friend. But then the third realm is in Luke 18, where he said that there was a judge, an unjust judge, that a widow came before. And- yeah, Jesus is telling a parable in Luke 18, the parable of the unjust judge. That isn't a third dimension of prayer. It's, so you're going to note here, if you were to just read these texts out, that uh, they do not say what it is that uh, Robert Henderson is saying at the moment. He's twisting these texts and basically relying on the gullibility of those in the charismatic movement. And that's the only way you can describe it, is that they are willfully gullible, uh, that they are not going to go and check 
these things out. So Luke 11, Luke 11, starting at verse 1, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Our Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins as we, for, as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And when he had said to them, which of you has a friend, will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey. I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will arise and give him whatever he needs." So here you have Jesus telling a parable, and the, this is not a dimension of prayer. Um, and you're going to note just when you read the parable itself that if this were a dimension of prayer, so the first dimension is God is Father, now God is Friend. Well, this doesn't sound like the best of friends because it's he he won't get up and help just because there's a need, but only will help because of impudence. Yeah, so I tell you... Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. The point is, is that God isn't anything like that fellow who won't help unless somebody is just continuing to badger them and be impudent. So, uh, yeah, we've got a problem here, and that is, is that he's twisted Luke 11. The other text in question that he was talking about was from Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, if you want to take a look at that as well. And uh, Jesus there is telling the story about the unjust judge. And in that text, you you were going to note that, you know, this is not a third realm, a third realm uh, of prayer that is being discussed here. And uh, here's where it starts. Luke 18, verse 1, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Uh-huh. The point of the parable is keep on praying, don't lose heart. In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And see, God is not like this at all. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man. By the way, this is not God. God is does does respect man yet because his this widow keeps bothering me i will give her uh, justice so that she will not beat me down with her continual coming and the lord said hear then what the, what the unrighteous judge says and will not god give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night uh, will he delay long over them i tell you he will give justice to them speedily nevertheless when the son of man comes will he find faith on the earth and so the whole point of the parable is is that god is nothing like that unjust judge god is just he does hear and so the point of the parable that jesus told was not to give us a third realm uh, in understanding prayer, he's giving this in order for us to understand that God truly does love and care for us, uh, those who are his Christians, and he will be speedy speedy in answering us. This is exactly what Scripture says. But uh, Robert Henderson here, with no check, no correction, no rebuke on the part of Sid Roth, is uh, is spewing this nonsense about, oh, I had to learn what the third realm of prayer was so that I could pray correctly so that people wouldn't die. 
the Bible is not saying that, that God is an unjust judge we have to convince. The whole issue is, if this widow could get a verdict from an unjust judge, how much more can we get a verdict from God, our righteous judge? And so that's the third dimension of prayer. Stepping into the courts of heaven, where that we begin to deal with every... Stepping into the courts of heaven. Where in Scripture are we told to, quote-unquote, step into the courts of heaven? legal issue that's stopping us from getting the full benefit of what Jesus paid for. All right, now I'm going to back this up so that you can hear what this theology is. More can we get a verdict from God, our righteous judge. And so that's the third dimension of prayer, stepping into the courts of heaven, where that we begin to deal with every legal issue that's stopping us from getting the full benefit of what Jesus paid for. Uh-huh. So apparently there are legal issues. So Jesus paid for certain things on the cross. <clears throat> like cough, 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 divine health, cough, 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 divine wealth. Yeah, and so, and the reason why you don't have these is apparently the uh, the devil, unbeknownst to you, has filed lawsuits, you know, in the courts of heaven to keep you from getting these things. You, you explain that the, one of the biggest hindrances is the devil has legal rights against us. Explain that. Yes. Yeah, which biblical text says that? That is that is one of the that is the biggest thing is that the enemy uses legal things in our own personal life but also in our bloodlines that he legal things in our bloodlines. Where does it say the devil has legal things in our bloodlines? Uses issues that become legal things that are used to resist God's purposes in our life. What is a legal thing? Peter addressed this in 1 Peter 5, 8, when he said, Be sober, be vigilant for your adversary. That's the Greek word antidikos, and it means one who brings a lawsuit. Yeah, 1 Peter 5, 8 does not teach what this fellow just said. 1 Peter 5, verse 8, we're going to apply our three rules for sound biblical exegesis, which are context, context, context. And uh, we will begin, why not, at the beginning of, uh, of 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter writing, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion, lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So note, he didn't read out 1 Peter 5, 8. 
Be sober-minded, be watchful, reason your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. So the, 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 what do we do then? We resist him, firm in our faith. It doesn't say anything about going to the courts of heaven. And how did he come up with his doctrine? Well, he went to the Greek word antidikos, and he used one of the potential definitions for that Koine Greek word, which is one who brings a charge in a lawsuit, an accuser or a plaintiff, that is one possible definition of the word antidikos. But all words have meanings in context. So the second one, the second meaning of antidikos is one who is continuously antagonistic to another, one who is an enemy or an opponent. So those are your two potential uh, definitions of the word antidikos, and the context will tell you which one is the correct definition to use uh, for the word. So in the context of 1 Peter 5, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, it is not saying that you, that that the devil is filing lawsuits against you that is the uh, an incorrect uh, definition for antidikos the correct one given the context is one who is an enemy or an opponent or one who is continually continually antagonistic so what robert henderson th- did there was engage in a form of verbal trickery verbal gymnastics by reaching in and grabbing the wrong definition given the context for antidikos to then f- try to make it appear that this doctrine that he's teaching, that we've got to go up into the courts of heaven because the devil is filing legal things against us, whatever a legal thing is, that is not what First Peter 5.8 says at all. So the enemy is occupying a legal position, building a case so he can bring a lawsuit so the Bible says he can devour. You see, he can only devour when he's discovered a legal right. And- no, that's not what First Peter 5, 8 says at all. You've just stuck that into the text. It's not there in the Bible at all. In the realm of healing, when the enemy is devouring us with sickness and disease, it's because he has discovered quite often something legal that's giving him the right to do that. Tell me about your friend that had the tumor. Yes, my, my friend um, was, was suffering from a pituitary gland tumor. Had, I think he had been in the condition for at least six weeks. And every 10 minutes, this intense pain would wash over him. The doctors could not get the pain relief. They had him on medicine, all sorts of things. We had prayed a couple of times, but nothing had changed. And all of a sudden, he called me and he said, uh, he said, would you please pray for me again? And I, at this point, and he's African-American, I said, okay, we need to deal with issues in your bloodline. And I said, what? You, what? In Africa, at every city gate, there is an altar that dedicates that city to demon powers and dedicates the the inhabitants of that city. Do you think that somebody who's been brought to penitent faith in Christ and has eternal life would have any lingering effects of some sin from their ancestors? And your ancestors would have lived in one of those cities. So we need to come before the courts and we need to ask that... From the courts, there would be an annulling of those covenants that were made in... No scripture tells us 
to do this. This is an extra-biblical, man-made doctrine. Bloodline that dedicated you and your bloodline to the devil. And so I led him through this prayer and through this process. Now I'm going to read a text that will help us out here. In uh, the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, we have this wonderful picture of what God has done for us. And so let me read it out for you. It's uh, Colossians chapter 1, and I'll start at verse 9 so that you can kind of see how the context works. Uh, uh, Colossians 1, 9, the verse in question is verse 13. Here's how it reads. So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He, God the Father, he has delivered us from the domain or the dominion of darkness, and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So 1 Corinthians, not 1 Corinthians, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, makes it clear that God the Father has already delivered us from the dominion of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. If we've been transferred from one kingdom to another, then there is no legal right for the devil to somehow you know, talk about things that were done in our ancestry that... <laughs> that would somehow dedicate us to demons after we've been brought to faith in Christ. This is absurd. He got up that night uh, and, went, and, and went to the couch area in the living room, and he prayed one more time. He said, Lord, please heal me. He found himself awake the next morning with no pain, completely healed, all the issue gone because we... All because he filed a lawsuit in heaven. Dealt with the legal right the enemy had used to afflict him with that sickness. And, and you find people, stage four cancer, yes. that when you find the legal right... Yeah, I'd like to see the medical records for all of these apparent, uh, supposed, alleged healings. Get rid of it then it's a given. Absolutely. I was just uh, in a conference and a lady walked up to me and said to me, she said, I just need to tell you, she hadn't even read my new book. She just said, I just took the principles that you have spoken of. And I went before the courts in behalf of my mother and, and over a process of time dealt with legal issues that the enemy was using. And she said, my mother is now completely healed of stage four cancer. Right. All because she applied the principles, which you can't find in scripture. Scripture, but are found in uh, Robert Henderson's new books. Yeah, that's uh, that's crazy. So uh, let me let me fast forward just a little bit, and I want you to hear the commercial then that uh, will be uh, played during the commercial break for the product that they're selling there on Sid Roth's It's Supernatural. Here we go. Robert Henderson received a new download from the Lord on how you... New download from the Lord. See, this isn't in the Bible. Robert Henderson received a new download from the Lord. Listen again. 
Robert Henderson received a new download from the Lord on how you can receive that long-awaited healing. It's time to end the delay. Now Robert wants to share these brand new supernatural keys. Brand new. These are absolutely brand spanking new supernatural keys. You couldn't, you can't find them in the scriptures. That Satan cannot stop you any longer from receiving your healing. Call now and get Robert Henderson's brand new book and exclusive three-part audio CD teaching, Receiving Healing from the Courts of Heaven, Removing Hindrances that Delay or Deny Healing. Yours for a donation of $35. Shipping in... Uh-huh, $35. $35, and you can get this new download, these new keys, brand new, that you can't find anywhere in the Scripture because, you know, his wife had a prophetic dream, and he just twisted. You get the point. I mean, it. it how, does, how does the saying go, there's a sucker born every minute? Yeah, that would be an example of, well, teaching for shameful gain, things that ought not to be done or taught, and uh, Robert Henderson is definitely making merchandise of people. That is most certainly true. And nothing he's saying is biblical at all. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to be hearing from Stephen Schock as well as T.D. Jakes. Don't want to miss him. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. Deep in the Australian wilderness, and also the typhoid-infested waters of the Bongo River, Captain Worthington and his ragtag group of men have found themselves to be hopelessly lost. Surrounded by the vicious savages of the Hamuku tribe, and now the TP has run out. It's been 27 days without food, and Private Jenkins doesn't care. Oh, do shut up, Nigel! We don't need you narrating every little thing that goes on. It's bad enough already. We don't need you reminding everyone about it. Sorry. Now, gentlemen, the hour is dying. There's not much hope of us getting out of this predicament with our lives or sanity. What are we going to do, Captain? Well, we can do one of two things. We can either die in a blaze of glory, charging the Hibuku tribe in battle, or sit on the riverbank saying to ourselves, Oh, mommy, mommy, please make the bad people go away. I vote for the second one. Shut the noise, you pansy! Now, Captain, I have an idea that might just save our hides from the impending doom on the other side of the tree line. Well, out with it, man. Out with it. I happen to have... In my possession, a copy of Zondervan's latest book, The Grimoire of Modern Prayer. Well, that's excellent news. We have TP again. Woo-hoo. No, no, no. We're not using it for that. Then what exactly are we using it for? Uh, it says this. 
With this volume, you can command and control the very will of God with relative ease. Uh, 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 yeah. Are you sure we can do that? Well, the, the book says we can. Is there any proof? Well, Stephen Furtick did write the introduction where he explains how it's changed his life. Well, um, how does it work? Simple. We can choose from any one of these prayers. Captain Worthington, uh, a book is approaching. Blasted. Perkins, get your act together and start reading from the book. It's our only chance. I don't know which one to read first. Uh, Which ones do you have to choose from? Well, there's the uh, Scenting Prayer, the Circle Maker Prayer, the Prayer of Jabez. The, The Circle one. Let's go with that one. Okay, the book says to draw a circle around what you're praying for. Well, that's us. Quick, men, draw a circle in the dirt around us. Step two, begin to pray for whatever it is that you're in need of. I really want a Ferrari. A Ferrari. You nitwit, we need protection. Now pray, audaciously. Oh, Lord, we are not going to leave this circle until you rescue us from our enemies. Amen. Are you sure? Pretty sure. <laughs> Unless he can breathe without his head being attached to his neck. Oh, dear. Well, there goes our narrator. What are we going to do, sir? Well, the circle prayer didn't work, so let's try something else. Packins! Working on it, sir. I, I think I got it. <laughs> I, I don't believe it's a, the Hubuku Drive. They now have catapults. Jumping Jehoshaphat. This next prayer had better work, Perkins. This one will work. It's the uh, Sun Sanso prayer. What good will that do? It's in the middle of the night. doesn't matter what you think. This is sure to work. We just have to have audacious enough faith to ask God for the impossible. You heard the man. Get praying. I still want a Ferrari, a pet raptor, uh, no gets. Ooh, and better sex. You're just not getting this, are you? Captain, they now have cannons! Well, this is impossible! And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich! And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box? No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Hey everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society and 
It's, it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee. And it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Yeah. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that uh, there is no new downloads regarding the Courts of Heaven thingy. Yeah, that's just nonsense. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a fantastic way to support us. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, click on the Donate button. If you'd like to support us using uh, Patreon and becoming a patron, click Click on the Become a Patron button. And if you'd like to make a one-time contribution the old-fashioned way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Doug Paget, Tony Jones, and Brian McLaren. This is their rendition of also Sprock Zarathustra by Strauss. And as you can tell, this is the epitome of avant-gardeness because they've abandoned the modernist definitions of notes. And they're just being led by the Spirit internally. Oh, this is pure. This is really good stuff. Listen in as it builds to its crescendo.
so we're heading over to the Vimeo channel for the what are called Chalk Talks, and this is Chalk Talk 22 on the scandalous inclusion of Acts 8. And we're going to note that um, in talking about this particular chapter, he makes some relevant points, but misses kind of a super-de-duper important thing in order to make, basically forward his agenda, what is uh, Stephen Schock's agenda, um, let's just say it involves affirming same-sex attraction, marriage, and uh, and denying binary human being genders and things like that. Yeah, apparently that's what the the underlying story there is in Acts chapter eight. It's radical inclusion, but we're going to point out how the details of the story it themselves make his point untenable. Let's uh, pay attention here, Stephen Shock. I never cease to be challenged by the groundbreaking story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, which you can find in the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 26 to 38. The impact and the implications of this short but explosive story are multi-layered and far-reaching. It's fundamental to the developing story of the early church, but of course, therefore, equally to the story and the mission of the church in the 21st century. And it reads like this. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah, the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And then Acts tells us that Philip spent some time talking with him and then concludes, as they travelled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptised him. Now, in my view, the first question to ask about any Bible passage... Now, 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 notice what he's going to say. In my view, and it's a fascinating story. It's a fascinating story. And when you read the commentaries on it, I mean, one of the things that comes up is the question of whether or not the fellow is a proselyte. Now, remember, there is a connection between Ethiopia and um, and ancient Israel, and that connection is made in the time of Solomon. Mm-hmm, you know, the, the Queen of Sheba. And so the fact that we have a fellow coming from Ethiopia, he, is, uh, he works as a court official in the court of Candace, the Queen of the Ethiopians, and he's there, you know, around the time of one of the festivals and traveling back from Jerusalem, having purchased an Isaiah scroll, which is not a cheap thing. Um, and so that's kind of a fascinating thing. The question comes up, is he a proselyte? Proselyte being somebody who is 
studying to become a Jew. Chances are very high that he was a proselyte. Uh, if he were to proselyte, why does he have an Isaiah scroll? Now, kind of important thing. Now, the fact that he is a eunuch, um, you know, the, I think a silly way to talk about it, but it kind of makes the point, is that if you are a court official in the ancient world and the, the monarch is a queen, in order to ensure that there's no funny business between you and the king, part of the job description requires, if you're a male, that you have what's called the lapidophamy. Um, procedure done. And this is what has happened to him as well. And which means that he'll never, as a proselyte to Judaism, be able to enjoy full fellowship because there's certain things in the Levitical law that would preclude that. Now, all of that being said, um, you know, what's fascinating here are the important details regarding baptism. And let me explain. So, it, Acts 8.36 uh, actually, 35, Philip opened his mouth, beginning with this scripture, Isaiah 53. He told him the good news, the gospel about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, this is where you need to pay attention to what the New Testament, as well as the ancient church, confesses regarding baptism. And if you have heard that baptism is, you know, you visibly showing the world that you've made a decision for Jesus or somehow it's going public with your confession of faith, there is no biblical text that says that. I'm sorry, there's like not even one. There's nothing that even remotely approaches that. Instead, uh, the best way to put it is, is that baptism is something that God does to you and it is accompanied with repentance. So, um, you know, for instance, the Nicene Creed, uh, it talks about there being one baptism, and listen to the words, for the forgiveness of sins. We get this from Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, when on the day of Pentecost, Peter has preached his amazing sermon. People are cut to the quick and uh, cut to the heart, and they ask a question. So Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 37, says this. Now they heard this, as they heard this as they were, and they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So Peter said to them, and listen to the words, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So you're going to note that, that the fact that the Ethiopian eunuch is saying, I want to be baptized, that means that there is true repentance going on, and he is recognizing his need to receive the forgiveness of his sins. Forgiveness of his sins uh, is a vital part of all of this, and so the fact that there's a reference to baptism, and Acts 2 is, is going to set your context for what that means, you, 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 the idea here is him hearing the good news, the, and what's the good news? That Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the Scripture, that he was raised again bodily on the third day, in accordance with the Scriptures, for our justification. That's the good news. Christ died for our sins. And this fellow says, I need to be baptized. So that being the case, whatever sins he entertained, committed, was guilty of 
from the time of his conception until the time of his conversion, all of that he is repenting of and confessing his need for a Savior by saying he needs to be baptized. Straight up the case. So it doesn't matter if his sin was homosexuality. It doesn't matter if his sin was adultery. It doesn't matter if his sins were lying and stealing and thieving and gossiping and all of that, right? None of that matters because he, at this point, is saying, I need to be baptized. And so we're going to note then that regardless of this fellow's past, regardless of his his ethnicity, None of that matters because God's grace and Jesus' forgiveness won on the cross is for everyone. Now, that being the case, let me um, let me read to you another text then that is going to come into play. He's not going to bring it into play, but I'm bringing it into play. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul writing in verse 9, starting in verse 9, says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were baptized, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and and by the Spirit of our God. So 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, I'll get notice baptism is mentioned there, it makes it clear that there are a whole lot of people who are guilty of a whole lot of sins, including idolatry, adultery, thieving, murder, homosexuality, drunkenness, reviling, swindlers, that 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 many of the people who were in Corinth were those things, were guilty of those things, but they were baptized, they were sanctified, they were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the forgiveness of sins that is won by Christ is for everybody, and no sin, with one exception, and that's the, the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, no sin is beyond the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross. So all of that's important because Acts 8 then shows that this fellow, despite the fact that the Mosaic Covenant would have kept him from having full fellowship within Israel, he is included in given full fellowship, and the fact that he's baptized is his, that's our call, the shorthand in the text, to say that this guy was brought to penitent faith in Christ and trusted in him for the forgiveness of his sins. There's repentance, there's baptism, there's forgiveness, and that's all the main point. But uh, Stephen Shock here is going to do something shocking, and that is, is he's going to overlook what the meaning of baptism is and the fact that this guy repented and is forgiven, and somehow turn this into, it's like, look at this, all this radical inclusion. And uh, he's going to twist the text like you wouldn't believe, which, by the way, this is a common text to be twisted this way by those who are postmodern liberals. Is, as I explained back in Chalk Talk 2, what did it mean to its original audience 
Only then can we go on to ask the secondary questions around what it means or not for us today. So what did this passage mean? Well, first, within the culture of the infant church in Jerusalem, the fact that the official is Ethiopian is scandalous. Judaism... No, actually, it's not scandalous. There are many proselytes from many different nationalities who were studying to become Jews. And uh, like I said, read the read the commentators, read the scholars on this. This kind of has all the hallmarks that this fellow is a proselyte. He's studying to become a Jew. In su- in similar way, by the way, Cornelius, the uh, the first true Gentile convert to Christianity, Roman soldier, uh, he was a proselyte. He was he was a God fearer who was studying to become Jewish. And so uh, we got a problem here. Him saying, oh, it, just the mere fact that he's uh, Ethiopian is scandalous. Yet, no, it's not. I mean, there were people from all over the, the known world who had traveled to Jerusalem and who, have, who had converted to Judaism. It's not scandalous. Judaism didn't forbid people from converting if they were a different nationality. The Jerusalem church is still very much a part was for Jewish people. The followers of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, believed and behaved as though the good news was Jewish good news for Jewish people or for anyone who would submit themselves to the lengthy process of proselytization, which included circumcision before acceptance into membership. Now, this is true, which is why if you know your first century history, there were some who studied to become Jews and studied Ju- uh, Judaism, but they didn't, for political reasons or other reasons, uh, subject themselves to circumcision. Therefore, they were never allowed to have full fellowship within the community. And so, yeah, that, you know, you kind of have to keep that in mind. But from its outset, the book of Acts, written, of course, with the benefit of hindsight, sets out to challenge these assumptions. So Luke, the writer of Acts, doesn't even try to suggest that the Ethiopian is a proselyte. Instead, he presents him simply as someone who's inquiring and questioning. But secondly, within the culture of the infant church in Jerusalem, the fact that the official is a eunuch is absolutely shocking. Even if this man's non-Jewishness had not been controversial, his gender status would have placed him totally beyond the pale, all on its own. Uh, Yeah, gender status, that's something you're imposing on the text, and let me explain. Um, So, (laughs) when we read the story, and uh, so let's take a look again at the text. So the Spirit said to Philip, so this is Acts chapter 8, verse 29, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now this, you know, so you're going to note the text makes it clear all of the pronouns for this Ethiopian eunuch, although he had had the lopidophamy uh, procedure done on him, you know, one of the job hazards you would, if you would have, you know, working for a queen in the ancient world, he'd had the lopidophamy procedure done. 
he still is male and all of the pronouns for him are male. He's still a man. He's not a woman. And he his gender status is never brought into question at all by the text. And what Shock is doing is taking today's modern, uh, not modern, but postmodern gender theories, which is utter garbage and nonsense, and imposing this on the text, but a careful reading of the text and the pronouns make it clear what he's saying is not possible. Whatever other steps he might have taken to make himself acceptable. As the Bible's restriction of Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 1 reads, no man whose sex organs have been crushed or cut can join in worship with the Lord's people. Right. There were restrictions as to you know how he could participate at all in Israel. This is most certainly true, but that doesn't make him a different gender. He's still a man. His gender is never in question. It's therefore of dramatic significance that Philip commits to the radical cause of action of baptizing this Ethiopian eunuch. Why would that be radical? Because in Acts chapter 2, Peter says, Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Uh huh. So, you know, basically what's being said here is that this Ethiopian is repenting and being baptized for the forgiveness of his sins. This is him saying, I am in need of a Savior. I, you know, I repent. That's what's going on here. So what is it that enables him to make this decision with no reference to anyone else long before Saul, who would become the great Apostle Paul to the Gentiles, has even set foot on the Damascus Road? What is it that enables him to make this decision before Peter had had his famous encounter with Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and had baptized him along with his whole family? What is it, most significantly, that enabled him to make this decision before the Council of Jerusalem was even a suggestion? You don't need a council decision to bring a penitent sinner to the waters of baptism. And you don't need a council decision for somebody to repent and to be forgiven. Jesus' forgiveness is for every sinner in the mind of James, the leader of the Jerusalem church. The point is this, before the theological questions have even been surfaced, let alone debated and resolved, Philip goes out on a limb. Why? Finding himself in this totally unprecedented situation, he can only be guided by his understanding of the teaching and the example of Jesus And that's what guides him, as the text makes plain. Even so, why does Luke choose not only to include the story, but to place it in such a prominent position in his narrative? If Philip was deemed by others to have made an error of judgment, to have rushed in... Nobody questioned what Philip did. Not even one person. Whereas, here's the interesting thing, when Peter went to the house of Cornelius as instructed by God the Holy Spirit. And Cornelius and his household was brought to faith in Christ. He was upbraided for eating with a Gentile. 
And yeah, Philip wasn't, which is another argument, by the way, for the fact that this guy is clearly has some status, is an inquiry or a student of Judaism in one form or another. Appropriately to have overstepped his authority or position or to have acted out of line with the wisdom of the church, then surely this embarrassing episode would have been erased from the record. There's nothing embarrassing about a sinner being brought to penitent faith in Christ and being baptized. Yeah, that what you're saying doesn't make any sense. And therefore from history. The fact that this scandalous story is preserved for later audiences... There's nothing scandalous about a sinner being brought to penitent faith in Christ and being baptized. ...such as ours can be for no other reason than the early church came to believe that Philip's actions, however shocking they appeared to be... Nobody expressed any shock at all. You're inserting that into the text. In line with the teaching and example of Christ, were inspired and guided by the Spirit of God and set the tone for their future mission. The church has much to learn from those it considers to be outsiders. It's through opening ourselves up to those on the margins, through engaging with them. Take uh, yeah, again, it's, it, <laughs> we are to go and preach the gospel to everybody regardless of what their pet sins are. Yeah, Christ died for sinners. That's kind of the point. He died for the ungodly. So we're able to go and talk to all the ungodly. So note here that what he's turning Philip into is a postmodern gender social justice warrior, and nothing could be further from the truth. It... Prompted by the Holy Spirit, Philip went and preached the gospel to this fellow. And he was brought to penitent faith in Christ. Was baptized. There's nothing shocking or scandalous about this at all. Time to listen to their voices and their stories that we discover more of who we are supposed to be. So it is that the first fully Gentile convert to Christianity is not only a dark-skinned African, but also from a sexual gender minority. No, he's not from a sexual gender minority, unless you're saying that men are a gender minority. Maybe they are, but I mean, it's pretty close, almost 50-50, you know what I mean? He's, you know, he's not part of a sexual gender minority. He's a man. All the pronouns used for him are masculine. And the call to 21st century Christians couldn't be clearer. It's a call to be radically inclusive and welcoming. And in line with the bold decision of Philip to find the confidence to act in this way before all the questions have been surfaced, let alone answered before the I's have been dotted and the T's have been crossed. Yeah, yeah again, anybody who is a penitent sinner trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, can be part of Christianity. Again, Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 6 do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, 
nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. You see, penitent believers in Jesus Christ who have had their sins forgiven, they no longer identify with and practice these sins. So somebody can say, before I was a Christian, I was a thief, I was greedy and a, and a murderer. But praise be to God, through Jesus Christ, I am now forgiven and I am a new creation in Christ. And I know what I used to be, I no longer am that. And that would apply to sexual immorality, adultery, homosexuality, and all other kinds of sins. So by not paying attention to the fact and really rightly understanding the fact that this fellow was baptized is a sign of his repentance and his need to be forgiven by Jesus Christ, yeah, um, Shock has turned this into, again, postmodern gender social justice warrior nonsense. The story of the Ethiopian unit graphically demonstrates the inclusiveness of the gospel. From now on, there's no room for issues such as those of race, sexuality, or gender to place a person beyond the good news of the kingdom of God. Right, because Jesus died for our sins, all of them, regardless of what they are. This will be a key part of the distinctiveness of the church. Right. So let's, I mean, let's just humor Stephen Shock here for a second and say, okay, so it just turns out that because this Ethiopian eunuch, we we found an extra biblical document. I'm talking like a crazy person here. We didn't really, but work with me here for a second. We found this extra biblical document, and we have found out that the Ethiopian eunuch, not only did he have the lop it off of me procedure done, but that he was gender confused. And, uh, and well... Yeah, from time to time he would, you know, do the drag thing. So, you know, all of this until Peter, until Philip showed up. And once he was brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of his sins, he bore fruit in keeping with repentance and embraced the fact that God made him male. Uh-huh. That's how that would play out. So, yeah, so beware of uh, how the postmodern liberals, Shock and others, try to take the story of the Ethiopian eunuch and turn him into some kind of, uh, you know, you know a, a proxy homosexual or a proxy, you know, gender-confused person or something like that because he's none of those things. And if you pay attention to the details of the story, even if he were, he weren't once he was baptized. That's the best way I could put it. So, yeah, yeah. Christianity is open for all who will bend the knee and say that they are sinners in need of the forgiveness of sins won by their crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. All right. Uh, we're going to have to save the T.D. Jakes segment for Thursday. So if uh, you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're heading down to Arise Church and listen to a miserable twisting of the story of them dry bones in Ezekiel 37. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back.
We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Listening to this program right now. Have you ever found yourself wishing there was more Fighting for the Faith content that you could listen to and share with your friends? Well, you're in luck, because we now at Pirate Christian Media have a YouTube channel that we upload content to on a weekly basis. We got programs like Twist Busters, You Don't Have to Be a Cessationist, Messed Up Church, Exclusive Skype Interviews, Pirate Gang Conversations, and our most popular segment, Dumpster Fire. So if you're looking for some extra Pirate Christian Media goodness in your life, head on over to YouTube and search for Fighting for the Faith and subscribe. Faith Sermon Review Time. So many people just chopping God's Word up and, and making mincemeat of it, even ignoring the things that are right there in the text they're working through that would help them understand what the passage is about. Let's do this right. Hey, ho! The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Arise Church in New Zealand. John Cameron presiding. The name of the sermon is Come, O Breath. Now, I'm going to say that... uh, there's something that John Cameron does that is good in this sermon, and that is is that he attempts to read out the text that he's going to teach on. Now, part of the problem is he's using the New Living Translation, which is not the best. Yeah, I would steer away from that one for preaching or even for personal Bible study. It's, it's best if you avoid it like the plague. Um, it's better than the message. 
this is true, but I would recommend the NASB, the ESV. You know, I'd stay away from the NIV nowadays. Um, you know, maybe the uh, New King James is a decent translation as well, but uh, I think you get the idea. But uh, that's part of the problem. So he'll start by reading the text, then he gets into a weird personal anecdote, and finally he'll get around to apparently trying to help us understand what it means. And by the time he gets there, he's no longer exegeting. He's doing something different, and that will be the problem. The Valley of the Dry Bones is truly like a parable in the Old Testament, and God himself gives us the meaning of that parable in the text itself, and we'll point that out. So let me go ahead and back off on the music, and without any further ado, here's John Cameron and Come O Breath. Here we go. All right, if you have a Bible, we're going to Ezekiel chapter 37. The book of Ezekiel chapter 37 will be absolutely fantastic. If you're taking notes, you could entitle this message, Come, O Breath. Come, O Breath. Ezekiel chapter 37 and verse 1. The Lord took hold of me, is the prophet. And I was carried away by the Spirit of the Lord to a valley filled with bones. He led me all around among the bones that covered the valley floor. They were scattered everywhere across the ground and were completely dried out. Then he asked me, son of man, can these bones become living people again? Oh, sovereign Lord, I replied, you alone know the answer to that. Then he said to me, speak a message, speak a prophetic message to these bones and say, dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am going to put breath into you and make you live again. I will put flesh and muscles on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath into you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I spoke the message just as he told me. And suddenly as I spoke, there was a rattling noise all across the valley. The bones of each body came together and attached themselves as complete skeletons. Then as I watched muscles and flesh formed over the bones Uh, then skin formed to cover their bodies but they still had no breath in them then he said to me speak a message a prophetic message to the winds son of man speak a prophetic message and say this is what the sovereign lord says come O breath come O breath Come, O breath, from these four winds. Breathe into these dead bones so they may live again. So I spoke the message as he commanded me, and breath came into their bodies. And they all came to to life and stood to their feet, a great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones represent the people of Israel. They are saying, they are saying, we have become old, dry bones. All hope is gone, and our nation is finished. And there's part of the problem right there. Uh, The New Living Translation does something funny with this text. So let's take a look at it. So far, I mean, um, what he's read out up to, you know, so verses 1 through 10 is probably a better way of putting it. What he's read out in verses 1 through 10, not so bad. But Ezekiel 37, 11 is going to, you got to pay close attention. This is why you need a good English translation. ESV is good. NASB is good. And there are others, but, you know, but be careful. Here's what, here's what it says in the ESV. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel, the, the whole house of Israel in its entirety. 
Behold, they say, our bones, our dried up, our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says Yahweh Elohim, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am Yahweh when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, and then you shall know that I am Yahweh. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. Now, important stuff for us here is that every Christian, according to the New Testament, is grafted into Israel. And you know, think of it this way. Jesus is the vine, we're the branches, so think Jesus really is Israel, and we are grafted into him. And so this is a prophecy regarding the resurrection from the grave. And all of us who are in Christ, we are part of the whole house of Israel because we've been grafted in. Wild olive shoots for us Gentiles have been grafted in to the cultivated vine, which is Israel. And this is an amazing and wonderful thing. So this is a prophecy regarding the resurrection. That's what it is about. But the NLT is takes it and kind of slipshods it into symbolic stuff. And as a result of it, kind of opens the door for where... John Cameron's going to go wrong with this. Therefore prophesy to them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Oh, my people, I will open your graves of exile. Your graves of exile. Yeah, no, no, that's not graves of exile. He, this is a promise regarding God opening their graves. And I will cause you to rise again. Then I will bring you back to the land of Israel. And when this happens, O oh my people, you will know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit in you and you will live again and return to your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done what I said. Yes, the Lord has spoken. Father, I pray that in these next few minutes you take this passage and that you'd cause your breath to blow, to breathe, to fill every heart and every soul. I believe you've got wonderful things for your people. I believe you're wanting to work miracles. There's some people in this room and they're saying all kinds of things about themselves, their life, and their destiny. Would you prophesy? Would you prophesy life in this place? Hope in this room. God. God. Awaken a mighty army in this place tonight, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen, amen. Thank you, Shahan. You're awesome. My daughter, Lara, started high school last year. Now this- and now begins the weird uh, personal anecdotal story, which doesn't exactly help us understand this text. Uh, bear with John Hare as he wants to tell us about this cool thing he's doing with his daughter, which technically is not a bad thing. Is that, you know, he's going to talk about how he is instructing his daughter in Scripture uh, using the time that they have together during a commute. It, it's an interesting story, but it doesn't really help us understand this text. It cost me five bucks, by the way. But my daughter Lara started high school last year, and 
apart from the, that's probably the worst thing that's ever happened to me in my life, by the way, is that I had to let her leave my house, leave my neighborhood and go a bit further off to school. My daughter started school and it was like the worst thing I could ever imagine. But the cloud had a silver lining. And the silver lining is that her school is half an hour away from our house, which means I get to take her to school, which means that for half an hour every day, I get to spend time with my beautiful princess. I love it so much. We're driving to school every morning. We do all kinds of things. She plays DJ. We play all kinds of things. And and I quickly realized that we've got this half an hour window and we better make sure we're using it really well. So I created a game. It's called Bible Trivia. And we started at the first term of last year, true story, and all year I've been teaching her different facts and little nerd things about the Bible. I'm pretty sure she knows more Bible trivia than her life group leader. And it got to the stage where by the fourth term, by the fourth term of the year, I decided we needed to do something different. So we decided we were going to do Old Testament Overview. This is true. I'm just not making this up. So during term four, I told my daughter an overview of the Old Testament. She went head to head with her mother and beat her just the other day, which is just absolutely awesome. I thought it might be fun at the start of this message to teach what I've been teaching Lara to you. How about that? Would you like that? Okay, first thing you need to know is that there are, Jillian's really competitive, by the way. She's very dark with me right now. I'm going over to the fun side. Are you guys with me? Are you happy? Are you happy that a youth beat an old person? I think of up to $30 by now. She keeps a running tally. 39 books in the Old Testament. 39 books in the Old Testament. The 39 books in the Old Testament are divided into three categories. The first category is historic books, and there are 17 of them. 17 historic books, followed by five Poetic books, beginning in Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. This is followed by another group of 17, and they are the prophetic books. We've got historic, poetic, and prophetic. In the first group of 17 books in the Bible, the the historic section, the first five were written by Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy, and they tell the story of creation all the way through to when Israel entered the promised land the land of Israel. The next group is 12, 12 books. And the first nine of those 12 tell the story of Israel in the promised land, beginning with Joshua 1, when they crossed the Jordan River and the next hundreds of years as they dwelt in the promised land. During the time that they were in the promised land, they began to sin. And God said to them, if you sin, then this promised land will spit you out. I need you to know tonight, just at the beginning of this message, that God has spoken promise over our lives. He has promises for us, blessing for us. He loves us. And the only way we can ever live outside of his promise is when we allow our own folly to draw us from it. And then there are three remaining books written while Israel was in exile because of their sin. Then we've got the middle five, and then we've got another group of 17. And the first group in the first and the final group of 17 is five books known as the major prophets. The major prophets are followed by 12 that are the minor prophets. In the minor prophets, we've got an initial group of nine that were written while Israel was in the promised land. The final three were written while Israel were in in exile. 
So you've got to get this. We've got a, a group of 17 historic books, five written by Moses. This is nerd fact, but this is for free. Then we've got five written by Moses. Then we've got 12 written in the promised land. The first nine while they were living there and three once they went into exile. Then we've got 17 prophetic books, the first five of the major prophets, nine minor prophets written while they're in the promised land, the final three written while they were in exile. The Bible is full of symmetry and and typology and laying precept upon precept and thing upon thing. And I want you to know that God began the journey of Israel all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. When we're reading tonight, we're reading from the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is in the major prophets, and maybe you've read the book of Ezekiel before, maybe you haven't, but in these major prophets, there are five. The first two of the major prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, wrote their stories, they gave their prophecies while Israel was living in the promised land. The middle of the major prophets is called Lamentations or the Lament, and it tells the story of Israel going into exile. Because of their sin, Israel had known such blessing, such great abundance. But then literally, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army came down, put hooks in their noses and led them into captivity. And the book of Lamentations is them telling the story of that journey from Israel to Babylon. They, they, they wrote that passage, by the rivers of Babylon, where we lay down. That's where we wept as we remembered Zion. The first of the two major prophets after the exile, that's when the next two are written, is the book of Ezekiel, our passage for tonight. All right, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning because the journey of Israel actually begins in Genesis chapter 12 when God spoke to a man by the name of Abraham. You remember Abraham? God said to him, if you'll leave your people, your father's family, go to the land to which I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I love the fact that our faith begins with the story of a man who was given a promise and a calling from God. And when anybody still to this very day discovers a real and living faith in Jesus. Now, this is the part where he starts to go off the rails. So he sees the story of Abraham as somehow normative. As soon as you believe in Jesus, you're going to get a purpose and a dream destiny, just like Abraham. Yeah, no, that's not how that works. Isn't it amazing to note God might speak to you firstly about your past, but then he's going to fill your life with promise. Have you found that? You come to God and he awakens you to more, to a life that is greater, to a promise for your tomorrow. That's the God that we worship. Can I get a little? Yeah, I don't even know what that means. I am created in Christ Jesus for good works. I know what those are because scripture defines that very clearly. Amen this evening. Abraham, then he had a son called Isaac, then he had a son called Jacob. Jacob had 12 kids, finally got busy. One of them was Joseph. Remember, Joseph went down into into Egypt, and then the family tribe followed him down there. For the next 400 years, Israel lived in the land of Egypt as slaves. A, A great contrast, because every day they would get up and they would work. And their work produced no benefit for them. Everything they bought in went to their Egyptian masters. Then they would worship. And when they worshipped, they were told that they were God's children. 
They would work and they were told they were nothing. They would worship and they were told they were God's people. They would work and they would be treated as the lowest of the low. And then they would worship and God would say, I've got a promise for you and a plan for you. Never think for a moment that your time of worship is redundant time. Whenever I see a believer disengaged in worship, I say, what on earth? That is a weird um, spin on that story from Scripture. Yeah, dubious and sketchy theology here. Believer that is missing out on the fullness of that identity that God has for you. Oh, anybody with me tonight that when you come into God's presence, you feel alive, full, you have a purpose, you have a destiny, there's a reason why you're here. Yeah, see, when I worship, I find a density. Uh Uh-huh, right. Christians should live with a, a, a dichotomy between your daily experience and your worship experience, because it is that that is the real you, and it's God's... What? So my worship experience is the real me. What text says that? Calling us to live higher, to live bigger, and to go further with the life that he has for us. Are you with me tonight? Then we find after 400 years in slavery that God raised up Moses. Remember Moses? He led the Israelites from their captivity in Egypt out into the wilderness. And then Joshua took them into the promised land. They are now living in a land that God has been preparing for them for 690 years. In that land, God blessed them more than they could ever imagine. A land that flowed with milk and honey. I mean, literally a land of abundance, a land of blessing. They increased, they prospered until eventually David became their king. When David was their king, he was a warrior one day and a worshiper the next day. Every man in this room needs to know that you'll never find greater strength in your life than you do when you become a worshiper. Never think that worship is for sissies and that fighting is only for real men. If you want real character, if you want real fighting power, if you want real strength in your life, then get the one who is the source of all strength deep on the inside of your life. David, this worshiper yet warrior, led Israel in battle and extended their borders until they finally were inhabitants of the entire promise. They literally walked in abundance and in blessing and in favor. David was an amazing king. Solomon is the next king. When Solomon became king, he did so well at the start. He made gold so commonplace that it was thought of as nothing. He he built abundance. He built great palaces. He walked in incredible favor. And then his heart began to distance from God. The next period of Israel's history is extremely sad. As the God who had prospered them and the God who had blessed them now becomes forgotten to them. Friends, in this room, never ever forget that far more important in your life than the things God gives you is the one who gave it to you. We need a generation like Job who said, naked I came in here, naked I'm going to leave here. It doesn't matter what I've got or what I don't have. In every season of my life, I'm going to be a praiser of the Most High God. We need to empty our heart of everything and fill it. Yeah, we need to, we need to, we need to. Yeah, I'm. would you get on with the exegesis because what you're saying here is some pretty sketchy, not true theology in what you're saying.
up with only him. We need to make a decision over our lives that no possession will rule me, no thing will ever define me, and no material good will ever cause me to backslide away from the one who gave it to me. If you're a lover of Jesus, can you just have a pause and give him some praise in this place? Come on. Come on. Because of their sin, God raised up these prophets, these prophets, these prophets, these prophets. They came, Isaiah, and they said, turn from your sin. Move away from this. You're headed in a dangerous direction. Jeremiah, oh guys, get on the right track. Stop this. This is not going to help you. God loves you, but you're hurting yourselves. You need to move in the right direction. Then finally, because of their sin, along came that Babylonian army. And everything they had, everything they'd ever taken for granted, everything they worked for, From the time that God gave a promise to Abraham, this incredible story of the most miraculous people ever to walk the face of the earth ends in the most humbling and tragic of circumstance as with hooks in their noses in the worst position they've ever been in. The harshest people to ever treat them. They were taken into captivity. Servants of the kingdom of Babylon. It is in this moment that God speaks to Ezekiel. Now, it's important for you and I to know that because for us in our lives, there are different moments that we have to find a place of hope where we have to call alive within us optimism. If you're going to live your life and you're going to keep moving, then you need to believe that there is a chance that tomorrow can be better. And in the middle of this moment, I think the hardest place in your life to ever possess optimism, the hardest place in your life to ever have a source of hope is the moment in your life that you're in because of your own stupidity. Where your wrong decisions got you somewhere, and in the middle of that place, you're trying to ask yourself, will this ever get better? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? And in the middle of this situation comes the prophecy that we're reading from tonight. Israel says our hope is gone. We have no future. We are like old dry bones. So the Bible comes along, God comes along and in a vision, he takes this prophet Ezekiel and he takes Ezekiel in a vision to a valley that is literally full of dry bones. When they get to the valley, God says to Ezekiel, the first thing I want you to do, Ezekiel, is I'm going to take you all through these dry bones. And right here, we've got a sermon in a moment. Because if there's one thing somebody in this room needs to understand, is that God doesn't want you to ignore your valley of dry bones. Stand on the edge. Whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) God doesn't want me to ignore my valley of dry bones. What are you talking about? Where is my valley of dry bones? Notice now he's allegorized it. Yeah, um, this is pointing to the resurrection. Yeah, my valley of dry bones would actually be my real grave. And because I've been grafted into Christ and grafted into Israel as a result of it, God's going to call me from my real grave. That is the valley of dry bones. Yeah, you don't get to just now somehow ascribe to the Valley of Dry Bones difficulties or setbacks in your life, which is exactly what John Cameron is doing, and by doing so is twisting this text. Your Valley of Dry Bones. God will call you to walk among your valley. What am I saying, John? I'm saying... Yeah, what are you saying? You're saying nothing. This is now turned into utter nonsense. 
tonight that if you're here this evening and you've got a bad doctor's report or a pile of bills. Yeah, your pile of bills and your bad doctor's report is not your valley of dry bones. Something that's broken in your life. Don't block the doctor's report in a cupboard. Don't shut the door on your bills and ignore it. Don't hide from what's wrong in your life. If you want to know God's blessing, then walk amongst the valley. God's going to call you firstly to understand the problem. See, Utter nonsense. He is mangling this text now. Man, if you've got a challenge financially in your life, go home from the service, take every bill, lay it out on a table, and walk amongst the valley. See the problem. That is ridiculous. So taking all of your unpaid bills and putting them on the floor so that you can walk amongst them, utter nonsense. God is not limited because of the size of the problem. Do you believe that? We gotta walk amongst them. We gotta see it. The Bible says that Abraham faced the facts. If you want a birthplace of faith in your life, don't go hide and go home and hide. Go home and face the facts. If your marriage is in difficulty, go home and face the fact. Walk amongst the valley of dry bones. If something's broken in your finances, in your health, sorry, get the doctor's report and look at it. Walk amongst the valley. Yeah, you get that doctor's report out and start walking amongst the valley. This is nonsense. The Bible tells us that God asked Ezekiel a question. He said to Ezekiel, he said, Ezekiel, can this valley of dry bones ever live again? Speaking now, can these bones live? Straight to the problem. Speaking straight to our hearts. You know, no matter what season of life that you find, we find ourselves in, my friend, God asks us a question. The question is one of possibility. The question is, can something good still happen? No, that's not what this text is about. The question is, can something that looks dead ever live again? God will not ignore it. He will not bypass it. He brings us to a point in our lives where we have to answer the question for ourselves. Can these bones become living people again? We have to acknowledge that there is some potential here. Can, can, can your dreams become real? Can your marriage be full of life? Can your body be healed? Can we lift our expectation? Can we, can we still believe? Can we see what is and yet consider what could be? Really what God's saying to uh, Ezekiel is he's saying, Ezekiel, even if you can't see it, you've got to acknowledge that God can do it. No, the whole vision of the Valley of Dry Bones is a parable it's a parable about the coming resurrection when God calls us from our graves. The text itself gives you the meaning of the vision. If you find yourself in a point in your life where you're doubting the ability of God, even if you can't see it, find a place where you can acknowledge that God could do it. Does anybody out there still believe that our God is able to do whatever he wants to do in any time frame he chooses to do it? Anybody still believe that the hand of the Lord is not too short that it cannot save? That our God works wonders, our God works miracles. Anybody still believe? Yeah, um, what's needed here is a belief that God answers prayer. One of the passages we read out earlier from the Gospel of Luke, uh uh-huh, Uh, from Luke 18, is that God hears the prayers of his saints. 
That's what is needed here, not some belief that God still is a miracle worker and, and then twist this text. Just go back to Luke 18. Jesus makes it very clear, very clear that we're not to give up. So Jesus says in Luke 18, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Speedily. So um, the whole purpose of the of the parable then, in Luke 18, 1, Jesus told them this parable, so that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So what's called for in this situation is not putting our bills on the floor and walking around them as if somehow that's going to do anything. What's called for us to do in difficult circumstances, circumstances where we can't pay our bills, circumstances where um, the doctor's report is a bad one, what's called for is for us to pray. That's what's needed. There is no family that can't be healed. There is no marriage that can't be restored. There's no school that can't be impacted with the gospel. There's no town that cannot be changed. There's no city that cannot rise. There's no nation that cannot know Jesus. If you believe in the power of our God, lift your voice and give that God some praise. Come on, come on, come on. Can these dry bones live? Can these dry bones live? Can these dry bones become living people again? Are you willing to acknowledge it? And I love Ezekiel. He's smart. And maybe you and I can learn from Ezekiel because Ezekiel is not yet at a point where he can believe for the good, but he is not at a point where he will exclude the potential of God. He said, God, what? Alone. Know the answer to that. You alone are the decider of that. You alone are the determiner of that. Man, let somebody get encouraged tonight that the one who decides what's going to happen next in your life is not your NCA results, not whether you got into the course you want, not whether you got the promotion you want, not whether earth is smiling on you with favor. The only determiner of where you're going to get to in your life and what you're going to accomplish is what God says over you. He alone. Does anybody declare that Jesus is Lord? Well, then my Bible tells me that no matter what happens to me in my life, God can make everything work together for the good of those who love him and accord according to his good purpose. I think you need to praise him a little bit louder if you believe that he can make it all work together for good. Whack five people and tell them something good's about to happen to you. Something good's about to happen to you. Something good is about to happen. Why would I tell that to my neighbor? Why should I believe something good is about to happen to me? That's not a promise that God has made in Ezekiel 37. To you, how God is able. Ezekiel is struggling. He's feeling down. And God says to him, listen, you're feeling down. Israel's feeling down. Everybody's saying that there's no tomorrow. But I've got a question for you. Can these bones live? And he said, well, God, you alone are the decider of that. Hey, how about we begin to declare that? You alone, God, decide what's happening in our nation, what's happening in our future. You alone decide where I'm going. I acknowledge you, doctor, but I'm telling you, you can tell me that my body's dying, but God is the one who decides whether I live or die. And no matter what happens, I'm going to praise him every breath that I've got. Come on, if you're with me, give God some praise in this room. 
come on, you alone, you alone, you alone. So then, then it's got, a, it's got another thing that happens to him. Because the Bible tells us the next God says to him, well, Ezekiel, the next thing I want you to do, listen, you've got to hear this. I want you to speak a message. I want you to speak a message. I want you to speak a prophetic message to this valley full of dry bones. I want you to speak a prophetic message. <laughs> I love this. I want you to begin to preach to a valley of dry bones. I love it. I love it. Because Ezekiel's preaching a sermon to inanimate objects. He's got a valley of dry bones. And God says, they're your crowd. Grab a microphone and start preaching. He's saying, don't you wait for everything to look good before you declare the potential of God. You start now declaring the potential of God. No, that's not what he's doing. This isn't declare it, blab it, and grab it theology. Don't you wait till they've stopped smoking before you declare that they can get saved. Start now. Don't wait until the marriage is full with tulips before you start to say that I love you. Start now. I'm preaching myself out of voice. But I reckon we need a generation that stopped us talking about our problems. Stop whining about our problems. Oh, the valley's dry. Oh, you should see the bank balance. Oh, you got no idea what this is. Oh, it's so hard to be me. Stop preaching about your problems. Yeah, this text isn't about your problems. That's the problem. Preaching to your problems. He's got them all worked up, but uh, what he's saying is powerless to actually assist them and help them in the real problems that they are facing. Somebody shout, preach to the problem, preach to the problem. We need to declare a message. I'm telling you what, this is going to change your life. I really, 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 I believe it, I believe it, I believe it. Somebody needs to go home. There are people in this church, I walked up to them every single month, and I tell them, you're going to buy a house. You're going to buy a house. You're going to buy a house. And then they go home and they look at the real estate magazine. And I'm sure they see obstacles to that. But I'm not here to be limited by what the valley looks like. By how dry the bones appear. We're not determined by natural circumstances. We're preaching a message to a valley. Come on, anybody. Why would you preach a message to a valley? That's totally not even a valid application of this text. Believe that a church can preach a message to a valley of dry bones. I'm not just going to whine about my problem. I'm speaking over my problem. Hey, body, you're full of joy. Hey, head, you're full of hope. Hey, hey, heart, you're full of love. I'm not going to be bound by yesterday. I'm not limited by my pain. I'm not bound by my tomorrow, my yesterdays. I'm living. Notice they're not being called to penitent faith in Christ. They're not being called to acknowledge that the difficulties they're going through may actually be the result of sin, real bona fide sin. And what's called for is repentance and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and a return to the first commandment. You will have no other God before me, which means we are to call upon God in our day of trouble. Trust him that he hears us and that he will answer us speedily. He doesn't promise us miracles. He promises to be there to help us. Hmm. Boy, this is a mess. Tomorrow, I'm alive for a promise. I'm going to change the world. I was preparing to preach yesterday. No, you're not. Not unless you're changing the world for the worst with this false teaching. 
I was preparing to preach yesterday and I, I gave away a whole lot of Bibles. So I took them to my office. So I had to pull out this old Bible. And this is an old Bible that I, I, I literally got a girl in my youth group whose brother is now Lord's drummer. But anyway, I grabbed this, this, I grabbed this old Bible that I got a girl in my youth group to put a custom cover on the front of it. And the reason why I did was because I was 23 years old. I was becoming a youth pastor. And I'd never been a youth pastor before. Never been in pastoral ministry before. And I didn't know what I was doing. And no one gave me any training. So I was freaking the heck out. So I grabbed my pad one night when I couldn't. How do you become a pastor without any training? That's contrary to the explicit instructions of Scripture. Wow. And I wrote down, I believe that God has called me. He's put his hand upon my life. He's called me to be a leader, to break down the bigger picture, to empower others, to release others. Past inadequacies will not limit me. Past failures will not hinder my tomorrows. Each day is a day of growth. I will rise and rise and rise again. I begin to prophesy over my life. I'm here to tell you, don't just listen to what people say about you. Circumstances say about you. Preach a message to your valley. Preach a message to your future. Preach a message and declare. Which will solve nothing in your life. Get on your knees. Ask God for help. That your God is greater. That your power is in you. That Jesus is on your side. Oh, come on, if you believe it, give a great shout of praise in this place. We're going to preach a message to a valley. We're going to preach a message. You're gonna... No, no, I won't. It's a message. We're going to declare that we're going to rise up, that we're going to be healed, that nations will be impacted, that the church will grow, that buildings will be built, that even Florida will be impacted for the cause of Christ. How God is greater. If you believe it, give me a little amen in this place. I love it. I love it. I love it. Now, young people, I know you do this sometimes at youth. You've got to help me. Are you ready to go? Because the Bible tells us that as Ezekiel began to prophesy, as Ezekiel He's he's preaching a sermon. His first sermon is to dead, dry bones. No, 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 fired up young people in in, in a a, a, a sweltering furnace called a hall at summer camp. He's preaching a message to dry bones, to dry bones, to dry bones. He doesn't have a life group. He's preaching to dry bones. He doesn't have, he doesn't have a friend who loves Jesus. He's preaching to a valley of dry bones. And in the middle of preaching to a valley of dry bones, he starts to preach the sermon. He starts to preach the sermon. And no sooner does he start to declare, valley of dry bones, you're going to come to life again. I'm going to put muscle on you, sinew on you, flesh is going to cover you, life is going to fill you. You will rise again. As he begins to speak the message out, he's still in his, he's still in his, he's still in his introduction. And as he's in the introduction, the Bible says that there came a rattling in the valley. Now that's a, that's a gift right there. The Bible says that they came. Are you with me? The Bible says that they came in the valley. A rattling in the valley. A rattling in the valley. As he began to speak to his problem. He- yeah, so no, he wasn't speaking to his problem. And we're not called to do the same. Just because we speak to our problems doesn't mean they're going to be a rattling of dry bones coming together. This is nonsense. He's got them all worked up over, well, deception. The power of the problem. 
He didn't have the potential to cause muscle to come. You can't manufacture muscle, can you, Mike? But the truth is that even though he had no... No, I didn't mean it to you. I meant it to us. I'm just saying, preacher to preacher, I'm just saying, even if you can't make it in the happen in the natural, you can speak a message to it. I believe there's a rattling coming in your valley. I believe there's some life coming where people sit. There is no rattling coming to my valley. I live in North Dakota. There are no valleys here. It's flatter than a pancake. Death. I believe there's a kick in your heart, a flutter of your spirit, a seed of potential, a knowledge on the inside. Can anybody hear the rattling of bones in a valley? Can anybody hear the rushing of wind? Anybody believe that tongues of fire still fall, that God still moves, that life still comes, that healing power is possible? If you believe it, give God one great shout of praise in this week. Cue sappy music. This is an emotional manipulation technique apparently designed now to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit is falling on the audience to convince them to prophesy and preach to their valleys of dry bones is whatever those things may be difficult bills to pay uh, bad health circumstances yeah 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 just preach and then though because if you preach to it there'll be a rattling and stuff which is utter nonsense come on you can stand your feet with you. stand your feet oh. As the bible tells us that just that hearing that the darkest moment. All hope is gone. They are saying. They are saying. They are saying. All hope is gone. We are old dry bones. Our hope has perished. There is no future. And God said, well, you tell them. You tell them. You tell them. That I will open up. I will open up the graves of their exile. Even when your own folly gets got you there. I'll still restore blessing to you. Even when your own stupidity got you the pain that you're in. Yeah, that stupidity would be called sin, and you need to preach it as sin. God's still going to speak a word of promise. Anybody just love that God? Come on, can we just give him the hand? What a merciful, what a compassionate, what a gracious, what a caring God. I don't know how stupid you might feel how idiotic you've been how great your stubbornness to your sinful but i want you to know tonight that god loves you before you ever loved him he's speaking blessing over you god demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners christ died for our sins so close and yet he didn't preach that at all you're speaking cursing over him i'm here to tell you that god is on your side and if you believe it lift him a great praise in this place come on, come on. and nobody was brought to repentance at all we didn't hear nothing about christ and him crucified for our sins at all come on. so then they stood to their feet a mighty army but they had no breath From Adam in a garden, it began as a lump of clay, into whom God breathed breath. To a bunch of 120 guys hiding out in an upper room. Let's call them what they are, a remnant. 
On the day of Pentecost, he gave them breath. Twelve Bible college dropouts, tax collectors, fishermen. One was a Pharisee. The Bible says he breathed. He breathed. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And in our hearts for our church at this season, I believe that God is just saying, prophesy to the four winds. Mm, yeah, so God's telling you, your church specifically in this season, yeah, whatever that means. Come on, Brad. Come on, Brad. Come on, Brad. Fill this heart. Fill this heart with joy. Fill this head with hope. Fill this life with promise. Dreams. When that breath comes, dreams come. When that breath comes, vision comes. Mm, when the breath comes, dreams come and vision comes. Okay. And this year, I believe God's going to cause you to come to life. <sighs> oh, this is so bad. Take you all the way through that journey to let you know that no matter how dark your night, there's a glimmer of dawn. No matter how desperate your situation, there is no reason for you to give in. That no matter how desolate the dry bones might appear, that we serve the God who gives life to the valley of dry bones. Yeah, making promises for God he hasn't made. And that's the end of that. Wow. Utter nonsense. Total darkness. Not even close to anything remotely approaching like good, sound, biblical light in a twisting of God's word and taking people's focus off the real promises that we have in Christ and what we are to really do as Christians in the midst of the difficulties and the suffering and the terrible circumstances of this world that we live in because of our sin. Yeah, it's just unbelievable. No repentance, no forgiveness of sins, no calling people to true prayer. A bunch of applications that will result in no help coming from God. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.